You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Holy Father, you give your church shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we have a blessed privilege of standing on the shoulders of so many, blessing after blessing. And in particular, we've gathered this evening to look at your servant, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I pray, Father, you give us hearts and minds that are not equal to the doctors, but the kind of sanctified heart and mind, a heart and mind presented to you, and that Christ would be glorified in us in some degree and measure as we see it in his life today, that this would edify and build us up. And so we look to you now, Father, send your spirit, bless this time together. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Ian Murray, who perhaps is the finest biographer of our age, and Lloyd-Jones's one-time colleague, and uh, served alongside him as his assistant minister, and his chief biographer writes, to a group of men who are paying compliments to her husband's powers, and no doubt they were speaking of his preaching powers there, to a group of men who are paying compliments to her husband's powers, Beth and Lloyd-Jones quietly remarked, no one will understand my husband. Whenever he says remarked, he means rebuked. No one will understand my husband until they realize that he is first of all a man of prayer and then an evangelist. And yet it's Lloyd-Jones the preacher, if we know him, that stands prominent in our minds. It's for his many books today that he's most well-known to us. That wasn't so in his time. He didn't really start publishing books until uh, his retirement. But it's for his books, which are collections of his sermons. They're the publications of his sermons that he's most well-known. I'd venture that 90% of his printed material bearing his name, well, sermons. And that which is not uh, a collection of sermons are addresses and lectures that he gave. And so many have contended, and with great warrant, that he was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. But just because he may have been the greatest preacher of the 20th century doesn't mean that the greatest thing, uh, that, that preaching is the greatest thing about him, or most fundamental, if you will. Rather, I think that taking Beth Ann's statement helps us best understand why it is that Lloyd-Jones was so great a preacher. His preaching didn't float. It was anchored. It was great because it was grounded. And so using Bethan's statement as an outline, Lloyd-Jones, that's our outline, Lloyd-Jones, man of prayer, evangelist, preacher. But to understand who Lloyd-Jones was, as a man of prayer, 
an evangelist and a preacher. We need to understand who the man was who was those things. And what I'm saying is in order, before we begin our analytical look at the doctor, we need to take a historical look. So uh, in our, before a topical analysis, analysis here's a, a short biographical sketch. And I'll present the doctor as the Welshman, the, pre, the doctor, the preacher, considering it there historically, biographically, not analytically. And then, forgive me if I pronounce the Welsh name wrong, because who but a Welshman can pronounce a Welsh word correctly? Uh, we'll consider him finally as Dodki, is the best I understand how you are to pronounce it, D-A-D-C-U. So, the Welshman. Before Lloyd-Jones was anything else, he was a Welshman. So, if you are familiar with the doctor, maybe you've read a thing or two by him, you find out that he ministered in Westminster Chapel, London, and then you find out that the uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust has some 1,600 recordings, sermons. You, you are, and I would encourage you to, to avail yourself of those. Go on mljtrust.org or look up their app on whatever platform you have. I, I'm sure they have it on Android and, uh, and iPhone. So uh, you, you go to get one of these sermons, you listen to it, and you think, he doesn't sound British at all. And that's because he wasn't British at all. And he deplored Welshmen who would intentionally try to shed their accent to please, he would say, their English masters. Lloyd-Jones was thoroughly Welsh. And so as we examine his life, you must excuse me for my not trying to pronounce any of the places of his childhood. Only telling you that he was born to a working class family on December 20th, 1899. And the significance of his birthplace is well brought out by Murray. The controlling principles by which MLJ lived were not Welsh, but in a thousand secondary things, he was Welsh through and through and proud to be so. While he condemned carnal nationalism and regarded any idea that nationality continues in heaven as dangerous speculation, he also rejected the idea that because a person is a Christian, he should lose his national identity or change his temperament or leave the culture into which he was born. Greek and barbarian, male and female, do not cease to be what they are by nature when they are made one in Christ." Just as the variations between individuals are not removed by regeneration, so the differences between national groupings and national characteristics remain among believers. And so the controlling principle in Lloyd-Jones was not his ethnicity, but his ethnicity defined who he was through and through in so many ways. Lloyd-Jones's heart through all his life was to remain in Wells. He was reared in the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church. And some of you, that may require some explanation. I see some furrowed brows. Calvinistic Methodist, how does that go together? And we need to remember that within Methodism, as it, sprung, as it sprang up, there were two streams. There's the one we're familiar with that bears the name of one of those men, Wesleyan. We, we understand Wesleyan Methodism. But we also need to remember that there was Whitfield. 
And while Whitfield left no denomination, no, no structure intact that carried forth his name, he would ridicule the idea and thought of that. He didn't do anything like that in Britain, we could say. But within Wales, there very much was a church that carried on for some time uh, his theology and his methodology. And in the same way that there was this great awakening in America with Jonathan Edwards and throughout England with Wesley and Whitfield, Wells experienced a, a mighty revival at the same time frame, and there were great men, great preachers such as Daniel Rowland, Howell Harris, who Lloyd-Jones would go on to hold in high regard. But the Welsh Presbyterian Church in Lloyd-Jones' time, that's the way you might more accurately think of her today, the Welsh Presbyterian Church, was in poor straits so that he would say of his childhood minister, our minister was a moral legalistic man, an old schoolmaster. I do not remember that he ever preached the gospel and none of us had any idea of the gospel. But because of an associational meeting, some good can come out of such a thing, because of an associational meeting celebrating the bicentenary of Daniel Rowland's life, he began to learn something of the old ways. And when I say that his heart was in Wells, I mean not only that he had a longing for Wells to return to these old ways that he was discovering, all his life he had this burden for, but also I mean that he was a Welshman at heart. His heart was Welsh. John Stott, who labored in London as a contemporary of Jones, Lloyd-Jones, comments, he combined the analytical prowess of a scientifically trained mind with the passion of a Welshman. In a broadcast for the BBC, Lloyd-Jones unpacked something of what it meant to be a Welshman, the sole anatomy of a Welshman in contrast to the Englishman. He spoke of how, Murray said, the Englishman's tendency is to function as a whole being, mind and will operating together. The Welshman, on the other hand, has a character which is capable of operating on a number of different levels which are not organically connected together. The level of feeling and imagination lies nearest to the surface in the Welshman, yet it is a complete mistake, he argued, to say that the Welshman is basically emotional. Merely to move the Welshman emotionally is to accomplish nothing because much stronger in its final influence in his makeup is his mind, which does not necessarily move in accordance with his feelings. Now quoting Lloyd-Jones, it is very easy to make a Welshman cry, but it needs an earthquake to make him change his mind. In this respect, the Welshman's character is truly deceptive because the Welshman's feelings constitute merely a thin layer on the surface and underneath is the thick, strong layer, the most important and strongest in which the Welshman's character, namely the mind, that which characterizes the mind is its love of reason and of definitions. It must have everything plainly and clearly and orderly. It follows the argument to its furthermost point and it demands consistency. So the Welshman, Lloyd-Jones would argue, is this is a passionate man, but that lies on the surface, and underneath it is a man of conviction and thought. But passion for the truth of God, thought concerning the truths of God, 
were well on the wane by the days of Lloyd-Jones. In 1914, due to hardship, now considering him as the doctor, the family moved to London, where his dad took up a dairy business, and they began attending the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church there in London, near them, Caring Cross Chapel. And at a young age, Lloyd-Jones went to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, or BART's as it was called, it's this prestigious learning hospital. It was the, the way we would think of the Mayo Clinic or something like that. That is the, the kind of prestige of, of Bart's. And he, he went there, graduated at 21 with a degree in medicine and surgery. Sir Thomas Horder, so a doctor who was knighted, Sir Thomas Horder uh, would be key at this time frame. He He not only instructed Lloyd-Jones, but as he did so, Lloyd-Jones so grabbed his attention that quickly he he had him serve, and this was a bit unorthodox. Normally, your uh, junior physician would be appointed. He requested Lloyd-Jones, and then Lloyd-Jones went on to serve as his chief clinical uh, assistant and then came into his own practice, became a Harley Street uh, physician. This is uh, a prestigious street where the the finest of doctors would all be located. And, and though Lloyd-Jones said that a Welshman's mind is his strongest characteristic, it was Horder that he would credit with teaching him how to think, to think Socratically, to think logically. Lloyd-Jones testifies, the most astute and clear thinker that I ever knew was my old t- teacher, Lord Horder. This was the chief element in his outstanding success as a doctor. He was a thorough diagnostician, And after he had collected his facts, he would reason until he reached his diagnosis. His method was to always work from first principles, never jumping to conclusions. Having gathered all the data on a patient, he would then set up all possible explanations for his illness like a group of Skittles. Then he proceeded to knock down one by one as objections were applied to them until there was only one left. Now, if you you know something of the doctor... Perhaps if you've read something like Spiritual Depression, and it carries through, that, that one just brings it most, uh, most to the fore. But if you've read anything by him, you understand here's a man who, who is a diagnostician of the soul. He, 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 he diagnoses the sin problem on a very accurate and, and pinpointed way. Not just, oh, you have sin sickness, but it was a specific diagnosis that the doctor often would give you. But as Lloyd-Jones was learning to think diagnostically, light was coming from without so that he properly diagnosed himself. At this time, he was converted, and he testifies, I am a Christian solely and entirely because of the grace of God and not because of anything I have thought or said or done. He brought me to know that I was dead, dead in trespasses and sins, a slave to the world and the flesh and the devil that in me dwelleth no good thing, and that I was under the wrath of God for eternal punishment. He brought me to see that the real cause of all my troubles and ills and that of all men was an evil and fallen nature, which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I myself was wrong at the very center of my being. And so with this proper diagnosis of his own soul, he began to look at Horder's diagnoses in a different light. 
he was assigned to refile Hoarder's case notes in a different manner, a more accessible, more utilitarian fashion. And as he was doing so, he noticed that upwards, I think Murray says something of 75% of the cases, it wasn't a medical issue at all that was really at root of their ills. It was a sin issue. It was a soul issue. And because of this, seeing these things at the same time, being able to diagnose his own soul and that of others, on the heels of his conversion came a call to ministry. And he wrestled hard with it for a year and a half, losing a lot of sleep and a lot of weight, not because he was scared to go into ministry or fearful of the cost. It's because he wanted to be certain about it. But in the end, in 1927, he found love, he returned to the land of his love, and he took up a calling of love. He found love. Beth Ann, it was love at first sight pretty much for Lloyd-Jones. She took some convincing. But in 1927, it was, uh, it was set they were to be wed. He determined to move back to this small Welsh town, a port town, a working class town, the land of his love, Wells, and he took up this calling of love, preaching the gospel of Christ. So, as a preacher, again, looking at it biographically at this point, this is how it was that the Harley Street physician came to give up a very promising career, medical career, to take his new bride to a small Welsh town to preach, we'll see, a simple gospel. Sandfields, as the church was referred to by the locals, was in debt and dwindling and dying. Programs were thought to be the solution, so that whenever someone asked, what are we to do with the stage, and they were referring to the stage that had been constructed for the dramatic society in the church, what are we to do with the stage? The doctor answered, you can heat the church with it. E.T. Rees, who then served as the church secretary, and who thought at that time programs were the answer, was to be converted to the doctor's philosophy of ministry as he was converted by the doctor's ministry. Rees says, at the time of Lloyd-Jones coming to Sandfield's There was an awful economic depression in the country and certainly in the Port Talbot area. It would be true to say that the majority of men were out of work. So this is the condition, and he goes on. That was the atmosphere. That was the environment. Yet this man dared to preach what would be called a simple gospel. God honored his preaching, and not only honored his preaching, but honored his courage in reorganizing the church activities. We believed in Sandfields at that time that To get a few pounds to meet the pressing debt and to offset the poor collections, we should have in the church a dramatic society, a football team, and such like. Why, we even believed it was necessary to have temperance teaching in order that boys and girls might grow up to be sober. But this man believed that preaching the gospel was enough. These little sidelines, as he would call them, were unnecessary. How well I remember him telling me one night, Look, here you can... Finish with that band of hope. Don't waste your time with it. And so souls were saved. The saints were sanctified. The debt was eliminated. The church thrived. 
And statistics would really fail to convey what was happening at Stanfield's. To understand it, you need to, you need to grasp two things. You need to grasp his preaching, which I hope you'll get some sense of as we go along. But you need to hear the testimonies, the stories of those being converted. There are a number of beautiful testimonies coming out of Sandfields. Beth Ann wrote a book herself just of stories from Sandfields uh, of, of the conversions that were experienced there. And so let me just speak of one of those conversions. Beth Ann's herself. She had always thought herself a Christian. And from the very beginning of her husband's preaching, though, she was shaken and writes, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remember how I used to rejoice to see drunkards come become Christians and envy them with all my heart because there they were full of joy and free. And here I was in such a different condition. I recall sitting in the study at 57 Victoria Road and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin and I shall always remember Martin saying as he looked through his books, read this. He gave me John Engel James's The Anxious Inquirer Directed. I've never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all my sins away. There at last I found release and I was so happy. Well, Jones would minister there from 27 to 1939, began preaching all over Wells, was in high demand, and he quickly became very exhausted. His health began to suffer some. His voice was strained. He began to also sense that his time at Sandfields was coming to an end. He, he didn't know why, but he resigned. And it was after he resigned, there came some communication from G. Campbell Morgan, the prestigious minister at Westminster Chapel, uh, the evangelical minister, not Calvinistic, but but Campbell Morgan had had his eyes on Lloyd-Jones for a while. He had been corresponding with him, speaking with him, going to conferences where he knew the doctor would be. And the reason was, this was Campbell Morgan's second stint at Westminster. And whenever he came back, he found her a very different church than when he left her. There was a liberal bent to her. And he wanted to ensure... The reason I think he really came back at all was only for this, to ensure that her future would be evangelical. And he thought that the doctor was the man. And so he pitched it as this idea of, I'm tired, which he was. I'm tired, I need help. Will you come alongside me and assist me for six months? After six months, it was, I don't even think it was six months. I think it was somewhere around three months. This was reevaluated, and he became a co-pastor alongside Morgan and then, altogether, his ministry was to last from 1939 to 1968. Now, being a more established church, some things were slower to change, but very soon, the basic ministry that you saw at Sandfields was replicated at Westminster, so that in 1957, Derek Walker wrote in British Weekly, Westminster Chapel is a church which thrives 
without making any visible effort to achieve success. Or so it would seem at first sight. It is well filled every Sunday, morning and evening, though its activities are not widely advertised and although the form of service makes no concessions to modern taste. It may be that this is the very absence that it is this very absence of any trace of modernity. We have the clue in this. We have the clue to the well-filled pews in Westminster Chapel. This kind of service, centered on the long expository sermon, makes an appeal to a certain group within nonconformity, the conservative evangelicals. While there, Lloyd-Jones' ministry would quickly spread internationally because of all of the foreigners who would be in London because of the war. He would take leadership in InterVarsity Fellowship. The Evangelical Library there in London would come into being largely through his aid and influence and help to Jeffrey Williams, who was a Reformed Baptist, who had accrued some 20,000 volumes, rare volumes, Puritans, 18th century Reformed writers, Scottish covenanters, uh, 20,000 volumes. These were... What we enjoy today was unknown in this era. And so Jeffrey Williams was collecting these because he didn't want them to disappear. And and so through Lloyd-Jones, the Evangelical Library was established. And then in conjunction with this, a young J.I. Packer comes to Lloyd-Jones, having discovered the Puritans himself, and speaks of starting a Puritan conference. And so the Puritan Conference was hosted in Westminster Chapel, would run from 1959 to 1970 until differences uh, arose between Packer and the doctor concerning the ecumenical movement. Then there was a split, and then it would, that conference was basically re- reborn as the Westminster Conference in 1971, would run another seven years until his health prevented him from continuing it. And this all leads to a way, I hope you can see how this is building, it all leads to a way in which you, if you've been impacted by the doctor, this is probably the way you've, you've been impacted by him indirectly. It all leads to, well, let me not give you the answer yet. There's a wealthy businessman, Jack Cullum, who was converted under the doctor's ministry. And Ian Murray is serving as, his, as the doctor's pastoral assistant at this time. And the doctor tells him to prepare this lecture on church history. And so this young convert, Jack, he's a wealthy businessman, doesn't want to waste his last years, is looking for something to do with his money to leave some kind of enduring legacy. And he hears this lecture and he asks Murray, why, why doesn't anyone know of the Puritans and the English reformers anymore? Why don't we know these things? And so it was that between these three men, Lloyd-Jones, Ian Murray, and Jack Cullum, that the Banner of Truth Trust came into being. If you've ever read, and really, if you've ever read any Puritan, if it's from, from any other publisher, it is, it is, uh, they are surfing on the wake that was created by the Banner of Truth Trust. And... Before we move on to consider uh, Lloyd-Jones analytically, one final element of his life that is worth some reflection, and that is to look at him as Dodkey. What's so beautiful 
is to come across a man who God used so mightily in his church and see that he was just as beautiful in his home. His wife, his children, his grandchildren all speak glowingly with high esteem of him. His personal letters to Beth Ann are full of love. For example, in 39, so likely he was in London looking for a home while they were still in Wales. He writes to her, With every passing year, I realize more and more that I am the luckiest man in all the world. No lover ever longed for his beloved as much as your poor husband longs for you. This was not without reason. Beth Ann is worthy of a study in and of herself. She's fascinating. She gave up a medical career herself. She was a doctor, and she gave that up to be a, a faithful helpmeet and support to her husband and to rear their two daughters. She freed her husband in a thousand ways. And uh, while if you asked their children who, who the head of the house was, they would all agree, the doctor, but if you asked them, who made things happen, who ran things in the house, who, who, was, who was the heart of the house and, and the brains in so many ways. It was Beth Ann. He loved his two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, and they along with those six grandchildren, like I said, are just full of praise. He, to give you some idea of, of his peculiar character, he, he loved them, he, he, they, they esteemed him with reason, but when they would go on vacation, he would spend his mornings reading. And then in the afternoon, he would join them. And so they would be on the beach, and he would walk out to the beach in his three-piece suit and enjoy a day at the beach with his children. He, he would play with them, but uh, the, the, still the kind of uh, austere picture that a lot of us have of the doctor, just from his preaching uh, uh, there, there's an element of, of joy and love and tenderness that you don't see from the pictures, but there is something that does carry through there in just the way he carried himself throughout all of life. But he was there for them. He listened to them. He didn't patronize them. He treated them as adults, and yet he was gentle and tender with their souls, took interest in whatever interested them, so that whenever one of his grandchildren began to show an interest in professional wrestling, it was settled. He... Lloyd-Jones, his grandfather, would watch professional wrestling. So alongside of seeing Dr. Lloyd-Jones in his three-piece suit at the beach, picture him sitting on the sofa next to his grandson watching professional wrestling. After retiring from Westminster in 68, it was then that he devoted most of, of his time to getting his books in print, getting his, his sermons in print. And this was occasioned by a decline in health, but he, he still continued a vibrant ministry for many years, preaching uh, all over the place. But in 79, his health began to deteriorate more rapidly, and in February of 1981, he asked for a pad and with a shaky hand wrote, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. And into that glory, he passed on March 1st. Now, picking back up on the doctor's dodkey and linking it to him as a man of prayer, consider this remark from Murray. 
to take time alone every day for reading the Scripture. And he used McShane's reading plan for over 50 years. To take time alone every day for the reading of Scriptures and for prayer was foundational to his view of living as a Christian. Family prayer marked the close of every day, and after his death, Beth and Lloyd-Jones was to say that it was here that she experienced her greatest loss. The absence of him leading the family in prayer was her greatest loss. Prayer not only marked him as Dodkey, but as minister. Writing of his main pastoral prayers, Murray says, was not unknown for self-satisfied listeners to, be, to meet with conviction upon hearing such prayer. While those who came with heavy and burdened spirits were often wonderfully uplifted, not infrequently Christians spoke of being so conscious of God's help to them personally during the prayer that they could have been content to go home at its conclusion. One reason that Dr. Lloyd-Jones was against liturgies and prayer was that he believed that true prayer is given by God, and therefore one must always be free to be led by Him at the actual moment of praying. In the words of top lady, often sung at the chapel, God is the inspirer and hearer of prayer. MLJ did not prepare prayers, though he sought to prepare himself. No two prayers were ever identical in thought or expression, notwithstanding general similarities. In length, the main prayer varied between 10 and 15 minutes. We never heard it commended for eloquence or criticized either for verging on preaching or for being too long. It was prayer which left the impression there there is such a thing as first-hand communion with God. On June 18, 1944, a V-1 rocket was heard approaching as Lloyd-Jones was leading in such a prayer. And he continued on in prayer until the noise was so loud that he knew he couldn't be heard. Derek Finn relates what went on to unfold. The engine cut out almost overhead, and after the silence, when the doctor faltered, a tremendous bang. The chapel structure cracked audibly under the effect of the blast, and bits of ceiling and dust fell from the roof. And then Amali Pickard tells us of how things went on. As the impact of the doodle bug was heard, the entire congregation rose to its feet. After the most brief pause, the doctor continued his prayer as though nothing had happened, and we all sat down again. It was only after he had finished talking to God that anything regarded the incident was said to the congregation. What underlies this kind of prayer, this kind of prayer life that impacts the home and the church? Sinclair Ferguson aptly states, he did not believe in prayer. He believed in God, and therefore he prayed. He believed in God. He believed in a particular God, in the God who speaks through Scripture and has revealed Himself. He believed in who that God is and who He's revealed Himself to be. In other words, it was truth. It was doctrine. It was theology that underlied His prayer life. In a sermon on Romans 8.26, he said, to, <clears throat> to tell people to start praying 
as they are is virtually to deny the whole Christian gospel. The gospel's first message is to tell us that there's only one way into God's presence and that the Lord Jesus, and that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and lived and died to this end, that He might bring us to God. He goes on to say, Certain teachers who achieve a measure of popularity at the present time say to their hearers, those preachers who emphasize the importance of theology and doctrine are but complicating the situation. All you need to do is turn to God and pray. They overlook the fact that men cannot pray without doctrine. They cannot go into the presence of God except by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's truth Gospel truth that underlies the approach to prayer. Prayer floats like a a vapor. It just sits as a meaningless mist without doctrine. Prayer involves the mind, the mind reflecting on truth and then acting upon that truth. In a sermon on Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, He says, the only general observation I would make is that Paul's prayers are always characterized by what can best be described as intelligence and thoughtfulness. The apostle does not merely pray in terms of his own feelings. His prayers are always ordered and always in terms of the condition of the people for whom he prays. He prays, in other words, with his mind as well as his heart. So to use the the mind, to reflect upon the truth of God, to properly diagnose and know the people and call out to God on their behalf was his approach in prayer. In a sermon from 1 John, he says, the Christian does not pray so much as a member of a country, but as a member of God's kingdom, as one of those unique people. It's it's not just... uh, It's not according to who you are. It's according to who God is and because of who He is, who you now are, part of His kingdom, that you come to God in prayer. Preaching out of Romans, he said, prayer for the success of God's work and God's kingdom is always right, so you can always pray for that. Our trouble usually is that we are so deeply concerned about our little problem and our particular difficulty that we forget everything else as if Our problem was the one thing that mattered in the whole universe. Pray for the success of God's kingdom, for the spread of His kingdom, for the success of His work. It's always safe to pray for a greater knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of His love, a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a greater understanding of His love toward you. You need never hesitate about offering such prayers. They are always acceptable to God. They are always well-pleasing in His sight. What the doctor is advocating for, for isn't it clear are prayers that are rooted in God's desires as revealed in his word rather than prayers that are rooted in the revelation of our desires so can you see why it is then that he would say that prayer is the chief diagnostic The ultimate test of the Christian life is the amount of time we give to prayer, he said. But my statement can be misleading because it rather represents prayer as a duty. Prayer is a duty, but it's much more than a duty. It should be a delight. 
it should be the ultimate expression of the Christian life. Now, when Lloyd-Jones speaks of it as a test, it's involving not just the element of time or devotion, but of the heart pouring forth unto God as it's impacted by truth, reflected on in the mind. The series on John 17, he preached, prayer in many ways is the supreme expression of our faith in God and our faith and confidence in the promises of God. There's nothing that a man ever does which so proclaims his faith as when he gets down on his knees and looks to God and talks to God. It is a tremendous confession of faith. I mean by this that he's not just running with his requests and petitions, but if he really waits upon God, if he really looks to God, he is there saying, yes, I believe it all. I believe you are the are a rewarder of them that diligently seek you. I believe you are the creator of all things and all things are in your hands. I know there is nothing outside of your control. I come to you because you are in all this and I find peace and rest and quiet in your holy presence and I'm praying to you because you are what you are. You see, he didn't just pray. He believed in God and therefore he prayed. Lloyd-Jones would say that prayer really is instinctual to the true Christian. Prayer to the Christian, to God's man, is something natural and almost instinctive. Prayer is something which is expressive of the relationship between the child and the father. Now, I think that is a very important argument. You show me a man who does not pray very much, and I will tell you the real problem of that man. It is that he does not know God. He does not know God as his father. But Lloyd-Jones would say it's not only the fundamental test. Are you a Christian or are you not? It's the test of growth. None of this is to say that prayer is easy. Again and again, I'm shocked by the number of places I would hear him say something like this. It was a constant, when he was teaching on prayer, somehow this, almost, this, this bit was brought in regularly. In a sermon on Ephesians 1, he says, Every preacher will, I am sure, agree that preaching is comparatively simple compared with praying. Because when one is preaching, one is speaking to men, but when a man prays, he is speaking to God. Many find it difficult to concentrate, others to know how to speak and how to form their petitions and so on. In his series on revival, he said, Prayer is not easy. Prayer, because we are what we are, is difficult and we need instruction. If we have never felt what our Lord's disciples felt when they turned to Him one afternoon and said, Lord, teach us to pray, it is probably because we've never really prayed at all. Prayer, the doctor would say, is not only the pulse, the chief vital of the saint, but of the church. Of the time, his time in Sandfields, Murray writes, from the outset, the prayer meeting was a gauge of the spiritual life of the church. Harry Wood, who had had something of a, a soccer career, came to be converted under the doctor's ministry. And it was after a, a notable prayer meeting that he walked out and told the doctor he was disappointed. The doctor puzzled, how, how can you be disappointed? 
after that. And he said, because it's been my prayer that I could go straight home after just such a prayer meeting. Sometime later, 1931, Harry Wood opened the prayer meeting. He read from John 17. And even the doctor said he prayed with such unction as he'd never heard before. He struck by it. And as Harry descended and took his seat near the doctor, he heard heavy breathing just in time to look over and see Harry fall to the floor dead. If prayer is truly, as the doctor argued, the gauge, the diagnostic of the saint, then Harry's soul was most well as he entered from speaking of the joy of our triune God to know that joy. Concerning the kind of freedom, the presence of the Spirit that Harry enjoyed in that moment, what the doctor would call unction or anointing, Lloyd-Jones would say there's nothing more wonderful. Now, if you've read anything of the doctor with any kind of analysis, you will recognize he's given to hyperbole. So that you'll turn sermon after sermon, and in the introduction, you'll see this is the most, chief importance, greatest, highest. And the crazy thing is, is you notice it like, you said that about this. three. You notice it, and yet you agree with him every time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the most, it's the greatest, he's right. And that's, I think, because of the angle that he, he knew how to take on that particular thing to raise it to this place of prominence. But nonetheless, whenever the doctor would speak in, in these hyperbolic ways concerning prayer, you really do sense that you're getting at something very near to the doctor's own heart. Something that it's not, it's not, just, a, not just an intellectual way that he came about the particular topic, but it's something that is very near to his heart. So that he would write, there is nothing on earth more wonderful than freedom in prayer. Are you not filled with delight and joy when you are suddenly given freedom? You may have been struggling in prayer, finding it difficult to concentrate, finding it difficult to gather your thoughts, finding it difficult to make contact, but suddenly freedom is given to you. Have you not noticed it also in public prayer? You may have been stumbling and halting, Praying as you should with your mind, ordering your thoughts, gathering your petitions. It is right to do so, but that is only the framework, the scaffolding. And you are not to rest content at that point. Suddenly, the Spirit comes. And you are taken out of yourself. And the words pour out of you. And you know that you are speaking to God. And that an exchange is taking place. You are in the realm of the Spirit and enjoying something of the glorious liberty of the children of God. When you read Lloyd-Jones here, and he never speaks of his own prayers. He was extremely hesitant to present anything biographical in his sermons. But whenever you read him, teaching on prayer, you sense you're learning from a seasoned veteran. This is coming not from some mental exercise. It's coming from the mind, but from the mind the truth there gripping the heart and soul 
being poured out before God in prayer such that you can see, I hope, why Beth Ann would say, no one will understand my husband until they know that he was, first of all, a man of prayer. And then, an evangelist. Such that another uh, one who was near to Lloyd-Jones said that he was chiefly an evangelist. But I think he, and that was Ian Murray, I think he was presenting that he was chiefly an evangelist as looking at his work in distinction from his preaching for which we know him. In the mornings, it was his practice to preach to the saints for their edification, for their being built up in Christ. But in the evenings, he preached evangelistic sermons. And while there would be a great number of members present at those evening services... And while the gospel was always preached in the morning, there was uh, this basic division of focus that in the morning he was preaching to the saints and in the evening preaching to sinners. And then beside this regular preaching, he was gone many times throughout the week, often sometimes upwards of four weeknights Uh, 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 a week preaching in other churches evangelistically, almost all these instances. There would be addresses to organizations and such, but the majority of this preaching that he was doing throughout the week was in churches. It was evangelistic. In an address to InterVarsity students, so this group of students concerned with evangelism, campus evangelism, he would say, true evangelism, I would maintain, is highly doctrinal. You see this common element now, that underneath his prayer was truth, the truth of God, God speaking and revealing himself. And now underneath his evangelism is the same truth. True evangelism, I would maintain, is highly doctrinal. It demands that in its challenges and its instructions. The cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith shall be made evident. It demands that they be made evident. We must beyond any doubt preach Christ who is the Son of God and who came to give Himself for sinners. We must preach the blood of Christ. We must preach the person of the Holy Spirit. There are other clear doctrines taught by the apostles which are also part of the gospel. If you're going to do evangelism, it must be doctrinal, he would say, highly doctrinal. In his lectures on preaching, and and this is a lengthy quote, it's just too full of truth that I think we need to hear today for me to leave much of it out. And his lectures on preaching advised, a type of preaching that is sometimes, indeed very frequently today, regarded as non-theological is evangelistic preaching. What would he say today? I well remember how when an evangelistic campaign was being held in London a few years ago, One of the liberal religious weeklies supporting the campaign said, let us have a theological truce while the campaign is on. It went on to say that after the campaign, we must then think things out and become theological. The idea was that evangelism is non-theological and to introduce theology at that stage is wrong. You bring people to Christ as they put it and then you teach them the truth. Now we say you bring them to Christ and you disregard the truth in. You might lose them at some point still. It is only subsequently that theology comes in. That to me is quite wrong and indeed monstrous. I would be prepared to argue 
that in many ways evangelistic preaching should be more rather than less theological than any other. And this is the good reason. Why is it that you call people to repent? Why do you call them to believe the gospel? You cannot properly deal with repentance in any true sense without dealing with the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of sin, and the wrath of God against sin. Then when you call men to come to Christ and give themselves to Him, how can you do so without knowing who He is or on what grounds you invite them to come to Him? And so on. In other words, it is all highly theological. Evangelism, which is not theological, is not evangelism at all in any true sense. It may be a calling for decisions. It may be a calling on people to come to religion or to live a better kind of life or the offering of some psychological benefits, but it cannot by any definition be regarded as Christian evangelism because there is no true reason for what you are doing apart from these great theological principles. And he would say that false evangelism goes wrong just here. The trouble with all false evangelism is that it does not start with doctrine. It does not start by realizing man's condition. All fleshly, carnal, man-made evangelism is the result of inadequate understanding of what the apostle teaches us in the first ten verses of the second chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. If you and I but realize that every man who is yet a sinner is absolutely dominated by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, if we only understood that he is really a child of wrath and dead in trespasses and sins, we would realize that only one power can deal with such an individual, and that is the power of God, the power of the Holy Ghost. And so we would put our confidence, not in man-made organizations, but in the power of God, in the prayer that holds on to God and asks for revival and descent of the Spirit, we would realize that nothing else can do it. And now, do you see the dots being connected? The same theology underlied his prayer that underlied his evangelism, but also the theology that's giving rise to this prayer is a praying and crying out, realizing that only God can make a dead sinner alive in Christ. And He does so by His Word. And so prayerfully, dependently, we come upon God, looking to God and not to ourselves. But false evangelism, it gets, it gets the theology wrong. It thinks something of man that he's not. And for that reason, the methodology fits. You have to give. So many false evangelists credit in this way. They're logically consistent. What they think about man has shaped their methodology. It wasn't just the what, though. The, the, it was the where of modern evangelism that bothered him. It wasn't just the empty content. It was the context in which evangelism was taking place that he was troubled by. True evangelism, he would argue, should take place in the context of the local church. And so, one of his chief criticisms of Billy Graham, and he met with Billy Graham and communicated many of these things to him. But his chief criticism, I don't think, would concern Graham's content so much, though he did have criticisms there. But those were not chief. Those were, those were not the big problem. His, his big problem concerned the context it concerned the ecumenical kind of nature. The, it, it concerned ecclesiology. It concerned the context of that evangelistic preaching. Graham was willing to partner with anyone who professed to be a Christian and any churches that said they were Christian. And so there was this link to false 
churches and to false doctrine. And yet, also, by the very nature of the campaign, there's not only this link to what is false, there's this distance from the church that's created by the campaign. There was doctrinal confusion and ecclesiological confusion that was born out of this methodology. In contrast, we have the doctor who preached every Sunday evening the gospel of Christ to sinners, who preached all these evangelistic messages, the majority of which were in the context of a local body, so that his evangelism was not just centered in churches, it linked souls to churches. And I have no doubts that if we were to compare the fruits as they have multiplied and spread, if if we were to compare the fruits of the doctor's long, slow evangelism with the flashy, showy campaigns of the time, I have little doubt where the greatest fruit, long-term, the healthiest fruit, the most vibrant that then is producing more and more fruit, I have no doubt where it's rooted. Whenever the proper soil and the proper fertilizer is used, crying out to God to water that gospel seed, that is where the highest yield will be. In his annual letter to the congregation in 47, he wrote, It has ever been my view on my understanding of the New Testament that the work of evangelism is to be done regularly by the local church and not by sporadic efforts and campaigns. More and more as modern influences tend to disintegrate and disrupt the recognized and divinely ordered units in life, such as the family and the home, shall we need to stress the unique value and importance of the church and church life as a vital unit in the spiritual realm. The glory of the life of the church is that it is corporate without violating individual personality as is done by crowds and mass meetings and movements. As we face the future, we are more determined than ever not to know anything save Jesus Christ and Him crucified and eschewing all worldly and carnal methods and devices to rely upon the power of the Spirit. He was first of all a man of prayer and then an evangelist. Those were not just the the how, uh, the where, it was the how. And and the where begins to to speak to the how, to the methodology, so that the doctor was critical of evangelism explosion. Even though it was uh, the child of Dr. James Kennedy, an Orthodox, Reformed, Presbyterian, uh, even though that was the case, the methodology bothered him. Rather than thinking that you could Find some program to solve the lack of evangelism in a local body. Lloyd-Jones blamed the pulpit. Speaking at his time in the Sandfields with those working class people, he said, conversions came slowly. Then the converts were known and they talked. I never trained a single convert how to approach others, but they did so. If our people cannot explain the way of salvation to unconverted men, we are deplorably bad preachers. 
The church doesn't need a method. She simply needs to be the church, Lloyd-Jones would say. We must start with the church if we are to evangelize the outsider. It is largely because we are lacking in the sense of the glory and not boasting in it that many are outside. Here we are in a world where men's hearts are failing them for fear. How timeless the doctor is. Where they have lost their way or know not where they are nor what to do nor where to turn and you and I who ought to be able to help them often seem as, be- as bewildered as they are. This is why they will not listen to us. But if they saw something of the radiance and the glory of God Himself and of Christ upon our faces, as those Israelites saw it in the face of Moses when He came down the mount with the tables of the law in His hands, they would begin to listen to us. They would say, look at these people. In spite of their being in this world, in spite of the hydrogen bomb, in spite of the various curtains, in spite of all that is happening, in spite of COVID, he didn't say that, look at them. Look at their peace. Look at their equanimity. Look at the wonder of their lives and personalities. They would be drawn and attracted and they would come to us and inquire us the secret of our different type of life and outlook. How is it that the church can return to such glory? I would say there needs to be prayer. But how is there to be the kind of prayer that the doctor has modeled for us? There needs to be prayer and there needs to be evangelism. Prayerfully dependent evangelism, preaching the truth. But how are these things to come about in the church? And now we consider Lloyd-Jones, the preacher. If you know the doctor at all, it's likely because you've read one of his books. And chances are high that that book is a collection of sermons. Or it's because you heard a sermon on Martin Lloyd-Jones' trust. Just considering his 30-year ministry at Westminster, he preached over, this is just Westminster, not counting all those others, over 4,000 sermons. What was it like to sit under his preaching? Tom Allen, a Scottish soldier, soldier who visited the chapel during the war, records the following. There was a thin congregation. A small man in a collar and tie walked almost apologetically to the platform and called the people to worship. I remember thinking that Lloyd-Jones must be ill and that his place was being taken by one of his office bearers. This illusion was not dispelled during the first part of the service, though I was impressed by the quiet reverence of the man's prayers and his reading of the Bible. Ultimately, he announced his text and began his sermon in the same quiet voice. Then a curious thing happened. For the next 40 minutes, I became completely unconscious of anything except the word that this man was speaking. Not his words, Mark you but someone behind them and in them and through them. I didn't realize it then, but I had been in the presence of the mystery of preaching when a man is lost in the message he proclaims. Reflecting on his first time attending the chapel, J.I. Packer recollects, I never heard such preaching. It came to me with the force of an electric shock. 
bringing me more a sense of God than any other man. A mature packer would look back and write, nearly 40 years on, still seems to me that all I've ever known about preaching was given me in the winter of 1948 to 49 when I worshipped at Westminster Chapel with some regularity. Through the thunder and lightning I felt and saw as never before the glory of Christ and of His gospel as modern man's only lifeline and learned by experience why historic Protestantism looks on preaching as the supreme means of grace and of communion with God. Preaching thus viewed and valued was the center of the doctor's life. Into it he poured himself unstintingly, for it, for it he pleaded untiringly. Rightly he believed that preachers are born rather than made, and that preaching is caught more than it is taught, and that the best way to vindicate preaching is to preach, and preach he did almost greedily to the very end of his life. What marked the doctor's preaching? He left no doubt what he thought it was that should mark preaching. And it is what marked his. Authority and power. In answering why preaching was in decline, he said, I would not hesitate to put in the first position the loss of belief in the authority of the Scriptures and a diminution of the belief of the truth. I put this first because I'm sure it is the main factor. If you've not got authority, you cannot speak well. You cannot preach. Great preaching always depends upon great themes. Great themes always produce great speaking in any realm. And this is particularly true, of course, in the realm of the church. While men believed in the Scriptures as the authoritative Word of God and spoke on the basis of that authority, you had great preaching. But once that went and men began to speculate and to theorize and to put up hypotheses and so on, The eloquence and the greatness of the spoken word inevitably declined and began to wane. In a sermon from 1 John, the preacher begins to preach concerning preaching. And and you sense what preaching is, not just in his definition, but as he's preaching. I think it still speaks today. Passing, perhaps we should observe. That is a loss of this very note in the preaching of the church, in this century in particular, that accounts for so much of the present state of the church, and the present state of the world and of society. A man standing in a Christian pulpit has no business to say, I suggest to you, or shall I put it to you, on the whole I think, or I am persuaded, or the results of research and knowledge and speculation all seem to point this direction. No! These things I declare unto you. I know that the old charge which has so often been brought up against the church and her preachers is that we are dogmatic. But the preacher who is not dogmatic is not a preacher in the New Testament sense. We should be modest about our own opinions and careful as to how we voice our own speculations. But here, thank God, we are not, we are not in such a realm. We are not concerned about such things. What we do is not to put forward a theory which commends itself to us as a possible explanation of the world and what we can do about it. The whole basis of the New Testament is that here is an announcement, a proclamation. Those are New Testament words. And so can you see why he insisted that all preaching be expository? Now, not all of his preaching was an expository series through a book of the 
of the Bible. But all of his messages were expository, bringing out the meaning of the text and bringing its truth to bear on his listeners. Even his evangelistic sermons, this was so. He would take smaller sections that he felt uh, would hit his target. 14 sermons from Ezekiel 36, 16 through 36. 9 from Galatians 6, 14. 9 from Isaiah 40. 110 from Acts 1 through 8. Yes, that collection of sermons that is on Acts 1 through 8, they're all evangelistic sermons. As for his Sunday mornings, though, where he's preaching to the church for their edification, 260 sermons from Ephesians, 14 from Colossians 1, chapter 1, 40 from Philippians. His first series at Westminster was comprised of 25 sermons through the book of 2 Peter, And his last was his 372nd sermon on the book of Romans, ending at chapter 14 and verse 17. So can you see why he would speak of the tragedy of topical preaching? Because it had its basis, not in drawing out the truth of the word, but in taking its cues from the world. So, authority stems from the Word, but with this, there must also be power. Those moments when the preacher himself is aware of that power. Not always, but those are are golden moments where he's aware of the anointing of the Spirit, not just upon him, but upon the messages that's going forth to God's people. He would speak of this as unction. And he writes, it gives clarity of thought, clarity of speech, ease of utterance, a great sense of authority and confidence as you are preaching, an awareness of a power not your own, thrilling through the whole of your being, and an indescribable sense of joy. You are a man possessed. You are taken hold of and taken up. I like to put it like this. And I know of nothing on earth that is comparable to this feeling. That when this happens to you, you have a feeling that you are not actually doing the preaching. You are looking on. You are looking on at yourself in amazement as this is happening. It is not your effort. You are just the instrument, the channel, the vehicle, and the Spirit is using you. And you are looking on in great enjoyment and astonishment. There is nothing that is in any way comparable to this. So, maybe besides that kind of freedom that Lloyd-Jones spoke of in prayer, we could say there's this freedom that's experienced in preaching, but the common denominator in both of them is that you have God's truth as this foundation and the Spirit's blessing on that truth being communicated. And this experience is key to understand what he would speak of often as the romance of preaching. He would say, you step into the pulpit and you never know what's going to happen. You never know when it might happen. We gather the wood. And we know that there's truth. 
we know that it's the means God uses. We know the authority, the message we declare, but then we cry out, Lord, send the fire. And this is why Lloyd-Jones would say that far more important than the preparation of a sermon is the preparation of the preacher. He told the students at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, There is an element in preaching which always leaves loose ends. There's something about preaching which you cannot prepare. You prepare your sermon, but as regards preaching, you prepare yourself. That is the distinction. You prepare yourself for the preaching. You must have your sermon, but even when you've got it, if you've not prepared yourself, if this other element is not there, it will avail you nothing. And such preparation at its heart involves prayer. No one will understand my husband, Bethan said, until they realize, first of all, that he was a man of prayer. In one of his 26 sermons on Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, yes, 26 sermons on those four verses. The series through Ephesians, there is one whole book that is nothing but the sermons on Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. On one of those sermons, he said, we are really dealing with the danger of ceasing to come under the power of the truth. The moment you cease to be under its power, you have already become a victim of the devil. I must apply that to myself as a preacher. If I can study the Bible without being searched and examined and humbled, without being lifted up and made to praise God, and to feel as much of the desire to sing when I'm alone in my study as when I'm standing in a pulpit, I am in a bad state. This is the truth of God. It is the power of God. We should always feel something of that power. There again, you see it wed together? What he's saying is, as I sit in my study, pouring over the truth, trying to get that truth out of the Word into my own soul, this whole response could be summed up as as, as saying that the Word of God should result in prayer, personal prayer, as you labor over it. The result of proper preparation of both the sermon and the preacher is frequently this unction that he's speaking of. Or, we could say the result is Lloyd-Jones's most famous definition of what preaching is. It is logic on fire. What is preaching? He spoke to those same Westminster students. Logic on fire. Eloquent reason. Are these contradictions? Of course they are not. Reason concerning this truth ought to be mightily eloquent, as you see it in the case of the Apostle Paul and others. It is theology on fire, and a theology which does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or uh, at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. I say a true understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in a pulpit and should never be allowed to enter one. See, we've 
we've come back yet again to where we began. The doctor was a Welshman. A sanctified Welshman. And he preached like one. The mind was foundational, but it didn't stop there. It gripped his heart. He began with doctrine and truth, but these truths were set on fire as he took them up prayerfully. Ian Murray comments that as in the preaching of Archibald Alexander, it could be said of him that in his sermons there was the steel links of reasoning read with the arduous, read with arduous, with with the ardors of burning love. Or we could put it this way. Underneath this logic on fire was a man of prayer and an evangelist. The truths of God, who He was and what He's done, moved Him to prayer. These truths were gospel truths that moved Him to proclaim the gospel, zealous, eager that souls would be saved. I believe Beth Ann is right. If we're to properly express thanks to our God for the gift that was the doctor, to recognize something of the gift that he was from our Lord, we must realize that he was first a man of prayer, then an evangelist. Then a preacher. Lloyd-Jones is inimitable. He was uniquely gifted. There will not be another. But so many, I believe, in trying to imitate those elements of the doctor that should be timeless, regardless of personality, wanting to imitate in particular his preaching of the gospel, I think they fall flat because they don't go deep enough. There's not this burning love for the truth. There's not this earnestness and confidence in prayer. But if there was, whatever our failures, however, fall sh- however short we may fall of the doctor's giftings, I think we're certain we would hit the mark, the aim of what the doctor says all true preaching is. I'll leave you with his words. What is the chief end of preaching? I like to think it is this. is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. As I have said already during this last year, I've been ill And so I've had opportunity and the privilege of listening to others instead of preaching myself. As I've listened in physical weakness, this is the thing I've looked for and longed for and desired. I can forgive a man for a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul. If he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the gospel. If he does that, I am his debtor, and I am profoundly grateful to him. 
Preaching is the most amazing and the most thrilling activity that one can ever be engaged in because of all that holds out for us, holds out for all of us in the present and because of the glorious endless possibilities in an, in an eternal future. Let's pray. Holy Father, we turn to you in prayer, asking that your word would be preached by earnest, confident, prayerful men in your churches, so that your people would be sanctified and changed. And that evangelism would be centered in your church so that your sheep would hear your voice and follow you and come to know you. Father, may it be true of us. Though we are zealous and earnest for gospel labors and fruits, First, may we be a people of prayer. May the very truths that we herald shape our methods. And may our method be simply this. To hold forth your word prayerfully. Knowing its authority, earnest that the Spirit would come in power. In the strong name of Jesus, we cry out to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.